0: Okay, hi, it's Danielle Karabkin uh, speaking to you from the Bayat in Thornhill, Ontario, in Canada, and we're studying the Vuchim, Maimonides' Guide for the Perplexed. Uh, we are using the Shlomo Pines edition uh, of the English translation, and we are currently in Section 3, Chapter 21, um, which is on page 484 in the Pines edition. Uh, uh, we are learning on the webyeshiva.org platform. Uh, and I invite you to uh, uh, take advantage of the variety of Shi'urim that are being offered by WebYeshiva. Yeshiva. Um, and you can check them out on Facebook or at webyeshiva.org. You can also, uh, if you'd like to be able to be apprised of the Shi'urim schedule for this of for this Guide for the Perplexed uh, Shi'ur, Uh, you can follow us along and join the Facebook group, Shi'ur in Moreh I invite you to do that as well. So um, let us get our bearings. We are in the midst of discussing divine knowledge, divine providence. We are on the precipice of discussing the idea of theodicy, of why bad things happen to good people, because there is clearly um, this sort of conflict in, in religious thought between God's absolute and complete knowledge of everything. Um, and at the same time, uh, his allowance for man to choose freely, free will and, uh, and divine knowledge are in conflict or divine providence. Uh, and then also we have to reconcile how come God allows so many bad things to happen in the world. So we're not there yet, but we're continuing in chapter 21 the discussion that we started in last week's chapter, which is about the perfection of God's knowledge in last week's chapter, and let me just bring up my handout so we can sort of look at where we are and where we're headed in this uh, in this discussion. The sort of the the, the title that I, I gave to this uh, to this chapter is only God has a priori knowledge of Existing things. I know that's a bit technical, so I'm going to explain what I mean um, in a moment. In the previous chapter, the Rambam had established that A, God's knowledge and human knowledge are two completely different things. As a matter of fact, the Rambam had given us a list of five ways in which God's knowledge is completely different and so oppositional in so many ways to the way human beings comprehend ideas. And there is no way that humans can understand divine knowledge. And and the, the, the secondary item that the Rambam wanted to point out to us is that God's knowledge of future events in no way impinges on free will. And the way that the Rambam had expressed that in the previous chapter is that things that are possible or contingent because they haven't happened yet remain that way even though God knows what the outcome is going to be. And this is not something that the human mind can easily grasp and the Rambam leaves it at that that uh, using the same verse that he used in Hilchot Shuva um which is from Isaiah kilo mach, shavotai mach my thoughts work completely different from your thoughts god is completely removed from time and space and therefore his thoughts have no impact on what is going to happen in the future now in chapter 21 which we're going to do today the rambam further distinguishes between divine knowledge and human knowledge illustrating the difference in terms of the maker versus the consumer. And what I mean by that, what the Rambam really means by that is that there is a fundamental difference um, in the the thought process between a person who manufactures an item and the consumer who who utilizes that item. Let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. And let me just uh, uh, perhaps present some definitions of the terminology that we're going to be using when we talk about a priori knowledge. So if you look at any encyclopedia that talks about uh, philosophy, you have two terms, a priori and a posteriori. Um, A priori and a posteriori refer primarily to how or on what basis a proposition or an object or a thing might be known. In general terms, a proposition is knowable a priori which means before the fact, if it is knowable independently of experience, while a proposition knowable a posteriori is knowable on the basis of experience. So for example, um, if you want to introduce me to your sister, I have never met your sister, you might be able to describe your sister to me in, in many, many different ways, but until I actually meet her, my knowledge of your sister is a priori knowledge it may be somewhat fuzzy it may be lacking and so therefore a priori knowledge of certain things is not a given but if you introduce me to your sister and then i interface with her and i see who she is and i get to know her i see what she looks like i see i listen to the to the tone of her voice i understand her personality my understanding of your sister is now a posteriori knowledge the distinction between a priori and a posteriori knowledge thus broadly corresponds to the distinction between empirical and non-empirical knowledge empirical knowledge means that i have a physical exposure to the the item in question So I therefore have empirical knowledge. I can take it into my laboratory. If I want to test something, I test it in a laboratory. And that's why we talk about science in terms of empirical science, because all of modern science is, is empirically based. We have to experience it. We have to look at it. We have to analyze it. And then we have a posteriori knowledge. But there are certain kinds of knowledge that sometimes we can intuit. So what philosophy texts talk about is you know in this uh, in the modern or sort of the uh, the renaissance debate between uh between Descartes and other philosophers it, you know Hume and Locke it is is knowledge a or is knowledge of everything empirical or a posteriori or are there certain things as Descartes had uh, put forth that are a priori knowledge. Can I have, for example, a knowledge of God um, without ever having any empirical contact with God? So that's the way that we use these terms traditionally in in philosophical texts. The way we're using it in this chapter is we wanna compare divine knowledge with human knowledge. When God has in mind to create something, then God's knowledge of the thing he wishes to create is a priori knowledge, because even before he's created that thing, he has knowledge of it. A posteriori knowledge is the way human beings encounter reality, because we only understand or uh, know of things that exist after we've been exposed to them, after we have an empirical interaction with them. And the truth of the matter is, is that it's not only just the difference between God and man, but anytime, says the Rambam, when a maker manufactures something, he is different from everyone else who utilizes that object. Only the maker has a priori knowledge of the object in his mind before he makes it. Everyone else can only know of the object by encountering it in the world, by having an empirical interface with the object. And the Rambam uses as his example, the manufacturer of the water clock. Now the water clock is an ancient and medieval system of being able to tell time. So I'll get to that in just a minute, but the Rambam writes, he understands the machinations of the weights, the flow of water, the strings, and the balls that need to move in order to correctly indicate the time. He carefully considers how to make the clock and then transfers his knowledge into the actual clock. When a person is an engineer or a scientist, a builder, a carpenter, and he wants to make something. So in the case of this uh, water clock, which was how in the medieval world, they used to use water as a, with an intake and an outflow, and that would move different gears and pulleys and, and would create a way of telling time. Uh, in the uh, Wikipedia entry, in the medieval Islamic world, the use of water clocks has its roots from Archimedes during the rise of Alexandrian Egypt and continues on through Byzantium. The water clocks by the Arabic engineer Al-Jazari, however, are credited for going well beyond anything that had preceded them. And he actually, and the reason perhaps why the Rambam was so um, taken by water clocks is because just around the time that the Rambam was writing the Moreh Nevuchim and perhaps in the 1190s or the 1180s, is when water clocks were really <clears throat> achieving a lot of new technology. As a matter of fact, in Al-Jazari's 1206 treaties, he describes one of his water clocks, the elephant clock. The clock recorded the passage of temporal hours, which meant that the rate of flow had to be changed daily to match the uneven length of days throughout the year. To accomplish this, the clock had two tanks. The top tank was connected to the time indicating mechanisms, and the bottom was connected to the flow control regulator. Basically, at daybreak, the tap was opened and water flowed from the top tank to the bottom tank via a float regulator that maintained a constant pressure in the receiving tank. I do not understand the mechanics of a water clock, but the but the artisan who made the water clocks certainly understands what he wants to build before it's actually built. That's the point that the Ramba makes. However, the water clock consumer knows none of the machinations of the clock until he observes the clock in action. The more he observes the clock and its different movements, the more he understands the workings of the clock until after hours upon hours of the observation, he can fully understand how the clock works. And you and I perhaps can relate to this in terms not of water clocks, but let's say, you know, when I was a kid, I was very inquisitive. And when there was, let's say, uh, oh, I don't know, uh, uh, a motorized toy, I would sometimes take apart the toy in order to open up the motor and to see how it works. And then after I opened it up and figured out how it works, I would have a better knowledge of how this thing was put together and what propelled the little toy car and made it go. But I had no knowledge of what made the car work the way it did until I actually opened up the toy and looked at the motor itself and saw that it was used a a pressure spring and you had to wind it up and so forth and so on. Now, uh, our modern examples, there's a big difference in your knowledge of your Tesla, for example, uh whether you're elon musk and you know how to make a tesla versus whether you're a consumer and you buy a tesla and you drive it the types of knowledge that you have um, elon musk's knowledge of the tesla exists even before the tesla is manufactured plus he has a much deeper understanding of the interaction between the battery and the drive shaft and all of the, the electronic components that go into making a tesla as an end user of a Tesla, I have a completely different conception, and I need, if I really want to sort of reverse engineer a Tesla, it would take me a very, very long time to figure it out until eventually I might, I might get the same knowledge as the manufacturer himself of the Tesla if I really was to uh, uh, carefully ponder and look at the schematics and really try to understand it the same thing would be true with a smartphone i use a smartphone all, uh, on a daily basis i use it to get my news i use it to communicate and my knowledge of the smartphone is limited as an end user to the utility of this phone i have never even though perhaps maybe i should really try to figure out in a, on a deeper um, mechanical level and a scientific level how this phone works i know that it has a microprocessor i know that there's a lot going on inside and that there's a circuit board and that there's a hard drive and all of the things that a computer needs to have but i don't really have a full understanding of a smartphone in the way that the people at apple who make this phone understand how it works and all of the different uh, components and features and so forth and so on okay So that's the idea that the Rambam wishes to communicate to us. And as we'll see, the manufacturer of reality is God, the consumer of reality is man. So, and then the Rambam extends the analogy further. Let's say the clock had an infinite number of functions, not just that it tells time, but also that it can do an infinite number of things it would be impossible for the observer to ever fully understand the clock because no human being has the capacity to understand that which is infinite. Now, furthermore, he can only understand the clock by observing it, so he cannot possibly comprehend its movements before the movements take place. So if the clock hasn't yet been manufactured and you tell me about what you plan to build I can't fully understand it until the clock comes into existence, right? Either you educate me on what you plan to build and I sort of get an idea or I can only um, understand how the clock works if I don't converse with the manufacturer until I actually encounter the clock in real life. Now, why is that relevant? Because the same is true for the difference between divine knowledge and human knowledge. And here the Rambam is just um, uh, extending the distinction between divine knowledge and human knowledge that he had uh, emphasized in the previous chapter. Our knowledge of existent things is purely a posteriori, that is our observations of things already in existence. Human knowledge therefore cannot grasp that which has not yet come into existence or that which is infinite. Now, uh, remember, uh, all the way back in section two, the, the Rambam had told us that he believed in an infinite universe, not that the universe has existed uh, infinitely in the past, but rather the world was created at some point, but that it will exist for all of infinity. The world is eternal going forward, a parte post, if you remember that terminology, that the world will continue existing after its initial creation. God set the world in motion to exist eternally. And that means, as the Rabbim had said in the previous couple of chapters, that there are an infinite number of organisms that are and will be created in the future. Because of that, no matter how much time I would spend observing creation, I would be deficient in two ways. Number one, I can't possibly um, uh, uh, have knowledge of things that do not yet exist, have not yet come into existence. Like, for example, I have not yet met my great-grandchildren. I may have met my children, I have met my grandchildren, but I haven't yet met my great-grandchildren, who I hope to meet sometime in the future, Be'ezrat Hashem, but I have no knowledge of them because they don't yet exist. Furthermore, assuming that there are going to be an infinite number of descendants that I will have, or infinite number of ants or other organisms in this world, there is no way for a human being to fully grasp all of that. Furthermore, because our knowledge is based on our encounters with multiple things, our knowledge is multitudinous based on the number of things we encounter and observe. This is the Rambam hearkening back to what he had said in the last couple of chapters, that another way that divine knowledge is different from human knowledge, is that divine knowledge is unitary. It is is that God's knowledge precedes all that exists and encompasses all that exists because God's knowledge is completely unitary. God does not accumulate knowledge as he encounters existent things, but rather his knowledge precedes all that exists and therefore is the unitary uh, concept that envelops all that exists. And that's what he says, divine knowledge is different. Whereas we derive knowledge of things through interacting with them, God's knowledge of things is independent of his encounter with those things. Instead, God's knowledge precedes the existence of the things God cognizes. God's knowledge of everything therefore retains God's unitary nature and God never attains any new knowledge through the coming to be of new things. God's knowledge therefore encompasses the infinite but his knowledge is completely unitary, never being broken down into the individual organisms, um, making different packets of knowledge, so to speak. God's knowledge preceding all existent things is true of all existent things, whether they be, and the Rambam breaks down all of existent items into three categories, and we've seen these three categories before, whether those things be completely separate from matter, the celestial realm of angels and the like, or whether they are material objects that exist eternally, so that the cosmic realm, the celestial spheres, and the planets that uh, are in constant motion and never change, or the things of our terrestrial existence, material individual objects, which come in and out of existence, but whose species follows a fixed rule of existence. So, for example, um, uh, the realm of frogs, right, there is a species of frogs that exist, come in, that each individual frog comes in and out of existence over the course of millennia. You probably have billions upon billions of frogs. And there's an infinite number of frogs because the world will exist into eternity. And therefore, uh, uh, you might think that God's knowledge of these things is variegated based on the individual components. But that's not true because God's knowledge encompasses the species of frogs and therefore God's knowledge is unitary in that respect as well. Hence, with regard to him, may he be exalted. This is just direct quote. There is no multiplicity of insights. This is on page 485 in the Pines edition. There is no multiplicity of insights and renewal and change of knowledge. For through knowing the reality of his immutable essence, He also knows the totality of what necessarily derives from all his acts. And the Rambam basically seems to be implying as follows. God's greatest knowledge is that of himself. He is conceding to the philosophers of the previous chapter who had uh, asserted that because everything else is subject to change and to be multitudinous, God's knowledge only extends to that which is completely unitary, namely himself. And there was a whole school of philosophers who therefore suggested that God can only know of himself and knows of nothing else in the world. And that is sort of, that's very close to the Aristotelian worldview that God is not aware of what is going on in our terrestrial existence. However, the Rambam disagrees with that. The Rambam says, by virtue of the fact that God knows of himself, He also knows what emanates from himself, which is all of creation, Um, both the things that are in the loftiest of realms of existence, and even the things which are the most temporal and physical items of our existence. For us to want to understand God's thinking is tantamount to wanting to be God, since his thoughts and essence are one and the same, as per last chapter. And since we cannot uh, understand God, we cannot be God, we also therefore cannot fathom his knowledge. And as a result, when we talk about divine knowledge, we are talking about a completely different thing from the knowledge that humans possess. We The, the word knowledge therefore is an amphibolous term, meaning that it has two completely different meanings and the, just sharing some very, very um, surface commonalities but they're really, really completely different. And therefore, any effort that we put into trying to understand divine knowledge is really going to be misplaced and unsuccessful. God therefore knows everything, and it is impossible for us to relate to this kind of knowledge. So the Rambam sort of concludes this chapter by saying, these lofty matters are truly wondrous. Despite the fact that there is no way to prove any of this, either using a torah methodology or a philosophical methodology and what the rambam is essentially saying is that there are certain concepts that are so out of bounds of the human process or the human mind that we will never be able to get clarity on these things but with all things such as these where there can be no formal demonstration one should follow the path that we have taken here in regard to the question of divine knowledge of things outside of God himself. And what the Rambam is basically saying is, I have established for you sort of like a general guiding principle that when there are things that the human mind simply cannot comprehend because they are completely out of the realm of experience of humanity, there's a certain path that you're supposed to take. And that's the path that I've taken in regard to trying to explain divine knowledge. I cannot prove that divine knowledge encompasses all that exists. I cannot prove that God knows everything, but I've provided you with a methodology to bring you to that point, and you should use that methodology whenever you encounter things that are too unfathomable to the human mind. Now the Rambam doesn't elaborate on this point and he doesn't really explain to us what kind of methodology he's presented to us. However, I noted in one safer that there's a cross-reference to what the Rambam had written in section one, chapter 32. And I wanna sort of just go through that very briefly so that we have a greater understanding of really what is the Rambam getting to. The Rambam in chapter 32 of the first section really was just starting to embark on the the subject of metaphysics he says uh, if you do not deceive yourself into believing that there is a demonstration or a proof with regard to matters that have not been demonstrated or proven if you do not hasten to reject and categorically pronounce false any assertions whose contradictions have not been demonstrated so the rambam is basically cautioning a person to use a methodological process, very methodical process of making sure that he arrives at truth. The first rule he says is, don't accept something as proven if it has not yet been proven. Do not reject something as as having been disproved if it has not yet been disproved. If you do not aspire to apprehend that which you are unable to apprehend, And the third rule, or the third charge he gives to his uh, reader is, don't try to comprehend something that is beyond human comprehension. If you do those three things, number one, you don't accept as proven something which hasn't been proved. You don't reject something which has not been proven to be false. And you don't try to understand something which is beyond human comprehension. You will achieve. You will have achieved human perfection and attained the rank of Rabbi Akiva who entered in peace and went out in peace. Nichnas b'shalom Yatza b'shalom the gemara in Chagiga that we've talked about before about the four sages who entered into the pardes, who entered into the realm of philosophical or deep speculation about God, when engaging in the three theoretical study of these metaphysical matters now the rambam what he's therefore seeming to be saying over here is as follows he seems to resign himself to not being able to prove certain metaphysical matters that are part of the divine realm that no human being can comprehend we cannot comprehend divine knowledge and we have to ultimately submit that no matter how much we're going to talk about god's knowledge no matter how much we're going to try and sort of prove what God knows and what he doesn't know, we're ultimately going to end up hitting a brick wall because human minds are limited in their capacity to understand divine matters. One can therefore only submit to what seems to be correct based on, and this is the way the Ra'al Baga understands this final statement of the Rambam, what seems to be correct based on our in, our tradition and the entire Torah system, which is based on divine knowledge, divine foreknowledge of everything, despite man possessing free will. Now, uh, the way that the Ramam is basically uh, uh, sort of resigning himself is, we know that God gave us a Torah. We know that in the Torah, God says that man stands to be accountable for all of his deeds. And we know based on a more holistic uh, discussion of Torah, not just that what's in the biblical text, but what's in our rich uh, uh, oral tradition as well, that there is a final realm of recompense where man will have to make a reckoning for everything that he's done in his life. If God was not knowledgeable, if God was not cognizant of what man does in life, then how could there be any concept of reward and punishment in some realm where God will bring mankind to judgment. We must therefore uh, conclude that God is knowledgeable of everything in the world and that even though he may not take action in this world in an interventive way that is readily apparent at different junctures, but we do affirm based on our knowledge of what of the Torah that God gave us that God must have knowledge of everything. Does this present philosophical difficulties? Most certainly it does. How can um, uh, the divinity, which is completely unitary, completely perfect, insert itself into a temporal existence of time and space when God is exalted above above all of that? How can God remain unitary when his knowledge is of multiple different things? Does not that imply there's a multiplicity within God because he harbors a knowledge of multiple things? And the Rambam, and and how can it be that God knows what's going to happen while at the same time allowing for man to have free will? You can't say that God discovers new things on the fly because that would suggest that God is subject to change by acquiring new knowledge as time goes along. And so all of these things are inherent contradictions. But the way to resolve that is to resign oneself to the fact that there are certain things that Rabbi Akiva accepted that he was not able to understand. And whereas perhaps his colleagues, Ben Azai and Ben Zoma and Rabbi Elisha Ben Abuya may have tried to uh, plumb the depths of divine knowledge in a way that was inaccessible to them. And therefore they were damaged as a result. We know that Ben Azai perished, Ben Zoma went insane and Rabbi Elisha Ben Abuya not comprehending what he was what he was seeing in this, in this deep introspective uh, um, uh, state became a heretic, Rabbi Akiva accepted the fact that there are certain things that I'm not privy to understanding. And even though they may present themselves in one way from a logical philosophical argument argumentation, that doesn't mean that that's the way they are because there are certain things that are beyond what is computable to the human mind. And it's for that reason that he was Yodzei Bisholem, that he was able to leave intact without his his sanity being compromised and also without his faith being compromised. So I think this is where we're going to hold it for today. Um, The Rambam in the next couple of chapters is going to be expositing on the book of Job because we now have arrived at a time when it's really right for us to start talking about the subject of theodicy, about how we reconcile how bad things happen in the world when the source of everything that exists is the ultimately good God, um, we hope that our studies today provide merit to Acheinu Bnei Israel in Israel, especially while it is, a, especially because it is a time of war and it is a very challenging time. And I hope that what other, wherever our discussions lead us in the next couple of chapters will be in some way a, a, a consolation or a comfort to be able to reconcile how sometimes truly, truly tragic events occur in this world, while at the same time believing that kol man da'avid rachmanu Ovid, that everything that God does is for the best and his knowledge, even though it precedes everything that occurs, God has preordained everything, and still allowing man free will. We'll hold it here, and I wish you a good week, and Bezrat Hashem will continue next time. Take care. Amen, thank you very much, Rabbi. Thank you.